Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progressions, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 17. In today's interview, we chat a bit about time management and schedule. So I figured I'd take this opportunity to rant on that for a little bit. Time is your most valuable resource. If you aren't fiercely defending your time and only investing it in the things that you choose, then you're likely often finding yourself stressed or overwhelmed. I should know, time is my ultimate battle. So me telling you about proper time management definitely feels a bit uh, imposter syndrome-ish, but I wanted to share what I've learned and what has helped me on my journey to conquer time so that hopefully you can avoid the mindset that I work to beat every day. Let's start with the act of saying yes, because it's what puts most people in a tough spot. A quick draw yes is a surefire way to find yourself off the path of your goals not to mention feeling overworked and stressed. As I mentioned in episode one of this show, every time you are saying yes to something, you are saying no to something else. So are you aware of what you're saying no to? If you're saying yes to every opportunity that comes your way, whether it aligns with your goals and values or not, you're saying no to a lot of things. Let's break this down a little bit. When you first start your career, you'll likely be taking as many opportunities as you can to refine your skills and experience different parts of the industry. This is a part of your journey, and to a certain extent, you need to do this. And it's from all these different gigs that you will discover where you excel and where you want to focus. It's the scarcity mindset attitude that has become built into the music industry that eventually turns this into a negative for you. You start your career taking every gig you can, and you make a habit out of it. Then, one day you wake up to find that you filled up all your time with a thousand jobs in a hundred different areas, and you have no real specialty and nothing that you've become the first call for. It's at this point that you realize the jack-of-all-trades with a side of scarcity worked against you. If you have goals set for yourself, you'll see the lack of direction in the work that you're doing is moving you forward, but at a snail's pace and often in a zigzag path. This is why it's important to identify what you are saying yes to and by doing so what you're saying no to. Eventually things that you're saying yes to that are not in line with your goals will result in something that is being left to the side. And this isn't even taking into account the non-work related things that you could be saying no to. Is being a good parent or a spouse in your core values and something that you want to strive for? So don't forget about your personal goals as well before running around town yesing everybody you meet. Okay, now let's say you're aware of what you are saying yes to, and you are fortunate enough to have loads of things that align with your values and pushing you towards your goals. Then the next question is, how are you saying yes? Are you over-promising to clients, friends, and family? Are you allocating 25 hours of every day to people around you? Balance is one of the toughest parts of the music industry and the gig lifestyle. Even if you're taking the right work for your goals, you could be taking too much of it. And I don't mean that you're hogging all the work, please stop taking so much of it. I mean, understand how long things take you and have a clear understanding of the deadlines each of your clients have. If it takes you two days to mix a song, don't book five songs and tell your clients you're doing them all that week. It's not going to happen. People have a tendency to overpromise. If you're making a habit of doing that, then you're setting yourself up for under-delivering and people will remember that. Trust me. I've sent far too many emails or text messages in my career telling people that I'm behind schedule. It sucks. They don't like it, and it can even cause some self-doubt in your own abilities if you're doing it regularly. 
you need to give your clients reasonable expectations of when a job is going to be done. This brings me to the next point. Do you know how long it takes you to do a job? You have to know how long it takes you to do something before you can build out a schedule that you can commit to. People's brains have a funny way of convincing them of what they want to believe. Let's use mixing as an example. If your process for a mix is that you spend a full day on it, then you wake up the next morning, put fresh ears on it for a couple hours, and then send it to the client. I'm willing to bet that you tell people that you do one song a day because that's what you believe. In actuality, you spent eight hours one day, then two hours the next. Then you started song two, and you put six hours in on that, so the next day you might need three or four more. Now song three comes along, and your ears are kind of tired, so maybe you prep it, and you decide to start that one fresh the next day. This is not a song a day pace. Here's what I suggest. Run a timer and log your time. Do it for everything you're working on. I've been doing this for almost two years, and by doing so, I can estimate a realistic workload and make commitments to projects that are more likely to be maintained. The other thing that comes from this is you can start to understand your real hourly wage on projects that you do for an all-in fee. This can be quite an eye-opener if you've never done it before. You might find that you're grossly undercharging for your time and not even realizing it. Also, once you realize the amount of time you're spending on different parts of a project and what your hourly ends up to be, you might actually find that outsourcing some of the work may be beneficial to your overall workflow. People have a tendency to continue to do every part of a job because they used to be hired to do certain tasks for somebody else early in their career. Now they're in the habit of wanting to always do these things and to do them their way. Once you reach a certain point in your career, these should be the first things you outsource. And don't forget that by doing so, you are teaching and helping bring in the next generation, just like someone else did for you. So the last piece of this that I want to get into is understanding when you are best at doing what you need to do. I've found that I'm most focused and alert in the morning and that I can do more work much faster at that time. Some people are more nocturnal and their creativity might lag during the day. Whatever it is, figure it out. Figure out when you do parts of your job best and structure your day around that. Put your most important and intense tasks in your schedule where you're most ready for them. And save what some would call low energy work for when you're least productive. This might be stuff like emails, paying your bills, reading about a new piece of software, or maybe social media work. So that's it. That's the best I can do right now in helping you manage and understand your time. It's a daily part of my work and growth to really optimize and control it. So maybe we'll do this again on episode 100. But until then, remember that the only thing in this world that you have a finite amount of is time. There will always be gigs. There won't always be time. Today's guest is London-based producer, composer, and session musician Will Hatton. Will's main focus is producing and releasing music under the moniker Hushchild, but he's also got an array of other things on his plate as well. He streams live lo-fi performances combining visual and audio elements to push the boundaries of experimental and electronic music. He composes for and works with various creative agencies and also curates an educational YouTube series called Inspired By. So welcome to the show, Will Hatton. What's up, Will? Hey, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm excited. You're my first uh, UK-based guest. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I had a couple uh, Europe's, but no, uh, no, uh, no London or anything. I've been binging the series, man, and I've, I've really been enjoying it. I love what you're doing. Oh, cool, man. And, That's great. Uh, I love yeah, it. I just really appreciate you having me on, man. It's a blast. Yeah, I was, uh, I was watching uh, a bunch of your videos this morning and, and uh, you know, typing your intro, uh, listening to Hush Child. That's like my, <laughs> my morning vibe anyway, is kind of like ambient okay. and like lo-fi. And uh, so it's great, man. I love your music and, and I dig your, your channel as well. I'm stealing tricks. So Thank you, buddy. I, I, when people ask me to describe my own music, I often uh, try and explain it. Like, you know, when we used to... I'm a hip hop kid. So when I used to listen to like hip hop uh, tapes in the 90s, in the early 2000s, and there were the skits in between, I try and explain to people that, that my music often sounds like the, uh, the background music to what would be heard in a hip hop skit. You can kind of <laughs> just ignore it and get on with your life, but you feel better that it's there, you know, than silence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Were you a huge hip hop fan, like growing up? Is that how you got into making beats? And um, growing, it was it was strange because growing up, it was um, I was like metal or nothing. You know, I didn't want to know. 
And then um, it must have been Linkin Park. It must have been something like oh, yeah. that Slipknot Linkin Park, like that new metal introduction of hip hop elements. And there's a DJ there as well. And then a friend at school when I was super, super young uh, brought me Dizzy Rascal or like his first album uh, on CD, which is obviously in the UK scene was, was huge, like the grime scene. And it just blew my mind, like these sounds that I'd never heard before and whatever. And then that started just this huge, uh, almost anxiety to hear every type of music. Like I had this thing of when I was going to school, I would take my uh, MP3 and I would know like how many songs would last me until I got to school. <laughs> and when I was passing other people, I'd always come home. Uh, I was talking to my sister the other day about this and she said that I had these weird anxieties and I would always come home and ask, what if somebody I had passed in the street was listening to my favorite genre of music, but I hadn't heard it yet and I didn't know that it existed? You know, my parents would always be like, that's, you, it's fine. You can live with that. It's, it's all right. And I'd be like, no, 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 but I need to hear it. So yeah, so it was, it was metal and rock and all of that kind of thing. And then I think when I got to about 10, 11 years old, my world just exploded. And I, I, I had a huge appreciation for every style of music, but hip hop was a huge one to this day. Yeah. Yeah. That's a strange, like anxiety to have. Or, or bizarre OCD, or you're just wondering what everybody else is listening to. It reminds me, there's a meme, I don't, I'm, I don't know if you've seen some variation of it, it's the two people, like a man and a woman laying in bed, and she's thinking like, is he thinking about another woman? And then his his bubble is like, have I ever had milk from the same cow twice? You know, you're just like, it's like, I feel like it's that kind of anxiety where you're like, yeah, God, that's man. The, the story of my life, buddy, yeah, right there. That's, that's great. Uh, so, um, when did you start deciding to get into making beats and making music as opposed to just being the uh, the crazy obsessed listener? It, it was at a young age. I think it was around the same time. And um, my music teacher, when I was in uh, grade seven in the UK, so you're like 11 years old, he was a huge mentor of mine and, and still is to this day, Mr. Murphin. And I started playing drums. I played every other instrument before that, but I just couldn't. I had like tiny hands, couldn't play the guitar, didn't get on with the piano. And um, yeah, like just that age old joke. I could just, I, I could play drums, I could hit things. And my <laughs> uh, teacher at the time, he knew I had that ADHD attention span where I just needed to be doing other things even when I was involved in an activity. So playing in a band wasn't really for me. I tried to be in a band and then I got obsessed with like the artwork or the uh, the name of the band or where we were going to play gigs. And it was like, learn a song first. So he put me on to session work because that's what he did before he was a teacher. And he was like, you want to become a session musician. And as soon as he told me that, that was my aim. So I was like 11 years old. And, um, you know, stop me if I go too far away from the question. No, here, no, you're fine. I, I like to ramble, my friend. But... Um, <laughs> From then, it was my only pathway and career that I could see was session musicianship. So I got my drum grades and then I started studying uh, music theory. And when I got to about 16 and I was at college, there was a guest lecturer um, called Richard Brown. And he was the musical director for the Lord of the Rings stage productions in London and New Zealand. And uh, I was hounding him. Like I got his email and just said, like, if there's anything that I can do to get involved with your production. Like I, I was like a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. Hounded him, hounded it, hounded him. And uh, he was doing a play that he, or a theater production that he'd written for like six months to trial it out at different theaters. And he gave me a shout. And that was my first taste and first like paid gig. Cool. Um, and I carried on session work for, well, I mean, I still do it to this day, but I carried on from that age, just trying to get different bands and, and, and different uh, clients and people to hear me play drums. And it wasn't until maybe like five or six years later, uh, I didn't go to university and uh, I took an apprenticeship and then I moved into teaching and I was teaching at the college that I studied at. And uh, I started teaching music production as just one of the, you know, it was like the drum teacher. And then I was teaching 
composing and sound design and, and, and just the recording elements in the studio. And then they needed someone to teach the kids how to use logic. And that was really when I started producing my own tracks because I was thinking about like, what am I going to bring to the lesson? Yeah. You know, I was teaching in the college for like 10 years and I did that alongside session work. And then I did that alongside, um, sort of co-owning or, or, or helping out at a studio with three other producers in London, in Brick Lane. And the, the old guys there, or the, the older guys that were there, they were just recording vocal takes for like rock bands. And there was this opportunity to bring in a wider market because nobody was bringing in like soul, R&B, hip hop, even though we were on Brick Lane and there were so many, you know, people traveling from all over the world and walking through Brick Lane. So I kind of made that my little niche in the studio to get more genres from the backgrounds that I liked. Of course, when I started getting folks in, they were asking if I had any beats, which <laughs> I definitely didn't. My only aim was to get them in the studio. And that's really where I started creating beats. It was only four or five years ago that I started like putting music out and things. So it was like a slow progression and it steered away from, from session work, but it kind of aided this overarching theme that had played since I was about like 10, 11 years old. That's cool. I was going to say, uh, we used to, when I was at, at Capitol, you know, we'd pick up the phone sometimes and there would always be somebody that wanted to book time and then wanted to know if we had beats and then would always want to get transferred up to the label. So it always cracks me up when somebody comes to a recording studio and they're, they think that like you just have music laying around. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and there, there was always, there was always folks that would come through and book the least amount of time, but think that they were going to get maybe like 30 tracks done. Oh yeah. And they were just going to go and go and go. And I was just like, all right, fine. No worries. I was hitting the button, you know, and we'd stumble on the first one, maybe get like the, a lead vocal and some ad libs done. And then that was the end of the session. And I was locking up. It was a, <laughs> it was a strange time, man, but I really enjoyed it. I think everybody has to find themselves in a situation where you got like a different client every four hours or like, you know, every every day a different person and you just like you, you learn how to interact with so many types of people and it ends up to be an invaluable tool later in life uh regards to your session work is it i mean obviously it's probably all remote now but were you doing a lot of like in studio sessions around london or were you always kind of set up to work at home i know drummers kind of go both ways yeah, it was it was a little 50-50 but most of my stuff was like live performance so like i said it started in orchestras okay and i was doing a lot of orchestral performances either percussion or a drum kit and then i had to figure out a way out of that bubble because i wasn't meeting anybody else i was meeting these like you know at the time i was like 17 and the only contacts i had were like these sort of 55 year old men that had done like oliver for <laughs> 20 years and um as I kind of sidestepped that into rock bands, obviously it was a lot more um, studio and gig performances. And then as I kind of made my way into like hip hop and R&B and soul, that became more studio based because they didn't really need a live drummer. That was when sort of like everybody was just trying to keep the overheads to a minimum and they had a DJ or whatever. So again, it became studio. And that was really when I like thought about dude, I need a, some kind of home setup because I can't keep paying for time. And I was taking, you know how it is, like you're taking like a tenner at the end of the day or something because you've traveled and you've eaten and you've paid for time. So yeah, totally. Yeah. It was a little bit, a little bit of 50, 50 throughout really. Okay. Yeah. 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 There's so many drummers that I know that have set up just really great, you know, spaces in, in their back garage or whatever. And they're just laying tracks all day long. It's, That's the dream, man. So it makes me a little sad for studios. Cause that was like, that is the thing that kind of keeps studios going. But I mean, it's the way of the world. You're, you're hiring a person exactly. for their, their vibe and their skill set. You're not necessarily, you don't need this room or that room. You want that guy playing drums and that's what you came for. So exactly. I think if I had my way like I, I told you before we started like i'm in a tiny apartment so you you can only and i'm in the middle floors as well oh, so yeah you're surrounded. just like the yeah public enemy number one like there's just so many people complaining about the noise but once we move out the idea is to get you know a little bit of land where i can make a studio yeah because the my favorite thing about that studio 
experience was the commute there to get into the mindset of whatever hat you were putting on that day, whether it was a jazz session, hip hop, it was rock, whatever, listen to the tracks and, and get in the mindset. And I feel like even now, because of COVID and the amount of time that the UK has been on lockdown, I just needed to change the space in which the home studio was at because I was just in the same room and I was getting writer's block a lot because it was just the same four walls. So the other day we like me and the girlfriend switched rooms from the rooms that we were working in just so we both had some different scenery for a while and it sort of like came to life for a few weeks. That's amazing. Do you, uh, are you driving her crazy with, uh, with beats all day? I've learned my lesson, buddy. Like the first, the, for the first, uh, few months maybe it was like tracking i don't know maybe some new chords i'd add a seventh or something like that and i'm a real neanderthal when it comes to the keys and i would just unplug the the headphones and play it out the laptop and be like what do you think of this and she's like uh yeah it's it's fine and then after a while you know it's that you, it's i could fine. see that it was great in and uh she was the only audience that i had and yeah she was like i don't need to hear play them when they're done. I don't need to hear every iteration of the demo. And I was like, okay, loud and clear. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Uh, so I wanted to talk about, you do a bunch of stuff. You're obviously a super talented musician, but I feel like you're slipped into this lane that the like the modern musician has to embrace where you have multiple streams of income and activity and whatever you're doing like you're doing a lot of stuff so i wanted to talk youtube for a minute and now that i know that you were a teacher was that part of your reasoning behind doing an education thing on youtube a hundred percent um i was thinking about this just this morning funny enough because obviously we had the christmas break and i took a break over the christmas period which felt kind of odd because it's the internet so i was like is there a, is there a need to take a a break people you know i'm still going to be watching youtube i'm going to hope that people are uploading but i took this break and i recorded and edited and uploaded uh the first one since since coming back yesterday it was like kind of a, a mad rush and i was thinking about the teaching thing and making the leap to youtube full time and it really and i didn't really recognize maybe how how conscious I'd been of that decision uh, at the time. And I was thinking about it. And when I was in teaching the first, I was there for 10 years and the first year I got into teaching when I was like 19. So I wasn't too dissimilar of an age and this is college level. So they're like 16 to 18. So we wasn't too dissimilar of an age when I was teaching. So there was a kind of mutual respect where I could say like, I'd worked with these couple of rappers or this band that you might've heard of and it was cool. But again, like it was such a different time for teaching that there was very much, and I'm not saying that this is the right or wrong way to um, command a classroom or, or give a lecture, but, but it was very much like you're the lecturer and we're the students. So you must have the information and we'll write that down. And it was fine. But when I got into my ninth and 10th year of teaching and I was pretty much solely teaching and delivering music production. A lot of the students were coming with questions of, oh, you did your sidechain compression like this, but DCAP uh, doesn't use a sidechain compressor. He just automates with volume. Can't we just do that? You know, and the, the, the kind of course that I had uh, structured was becoming very quickly unstuck because these guys that had like cracked fruity loops for six months had watched some dude on YouTube have a different idea or a different perspective or a different way of going about things. So I started the YouTube channel and uploading this educative material when I was in teaching. And I saw this flip where my students were watching my material online and commenting 
and engaging with it. But then they would come to my lecture and just spend the entire time on their phone or chatting or like going to the bathroom or whatever. So they just really weren't engaging in lectures. Oh, it's and I was like, this is the same material, you know? And yeah, I, f I found it super interesting as I made the conscious leap to, and again, like props to my girlfriend for bringing this to my attention. I'd always had this uh, luck, I guess, of finding a creative project to get involved with and going into it full steam and something would come out of it, a new contact, a new gig, uh, a sponsor, wh whatever it be, something would come out of it, but I would always be blindsided by the overarching like job that I had to go back to of teaching. And it was really just dividing my attention. And I was getting really depressed with it. And she was like, you obviously like teaching. And I, I'm like super passionate about education. I'm always trying to learn myself. She was like, just go full time into the YouTube thing and see what happens. And, and that was really like at the start of this COVID thing, because everybody had like an abundance of time. And that's when I was like, okay, yeah, cool. It's now or never. Every year in teaching, I was like, this is going to be the year that I leave. And then the summer would come and I would enjoy the summer. I hadn't looked for any jobs and I wasn't going full, fully freelance, you know, as well as I could be. And it went on for about three or four years. And she was like, it's now or never. We're not going anywhere for a while. Do the YouTube thing. So, yeah, it all stemmed that long tangent. I'm sorry, buddy. That long tangent all to say, yes, it stemmed from teaching. Well, I think it's it's really amazing because I, I've actually never been a YouTube watcher until COVID. And until like, mm. you know, trying to learn the graphics for the podcast or whatever it is, like I have Googled and YouTube so many things over the last six months. Mm. And I'm finding all of these people that are doing amazing tutorials and amazing videos. It cracks me up that your students were all about watching your videos and not going, not really paying attention to class, which is kind of like when you, the parallel, like they were really into YouTube. So they liked your YouTube aspect, like when you were younger they were interested in the artist you worked with because you had that like it you need that um commonality i guess exactly youtube is making education this weird place and especially now in covid where people are stuck with online learning and everything a lot of these kids they prefer to watch it and learn it at their own pace anyway i don't know, it's just it's it's a crazy time it's interesting to see like two you know two three years from now what education looks like because I think a lot of people have made really great courses and there's a lot of access. It's like everything's kind of sped up. So I think it's, uh, I think it's dope. I, I enjoy your, your videos for sure. Thank you, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes because I think the, the fact that we were forced into the pandemic made everybody really think about the technology thing. Like, do, do you remember in March when it was all kicking off for the rest of the world and, and, Zoom was like the, I mean, we're on Zoom right now. Like yeah. it was the savior. Right. And I was saying, uh, I can't remember if it was to, to family or to my girlfriend, but I was like, it could have been any company. Like there might be better platforms than Zoom, but it was just Zoom was there and it was convenient. And everybody was like, cool, we're going to do quizzes on Zoom. We're going to spend Christmas on Zoom. We're going to do this. But it could have been another company that flew in. Oh, and yeah. I think the pandemic made creatives and investors and businesses really go, okay, what have we got at our disposal and how can we better this? Because we don't know how long this is going to go on for. And if we can get on top now, then it's going to make everything else so much easier uh, when we come out of it. And I think, again, that's, that's where the passion for YouTube and the passion for technology alongside music, for me personally, comes along because there's now so much room for innovation. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was, I've talked to a couple of people in various industries and they basically all say the same thing that, you know, their company's like five-year technology plan got shifted into nine months and you know, it's really, yeah, just like, well, right, we have need to go full speed ahead on the internet and remote and blah, blah, blah. And like, this is where we wanted to be in 2030 and now we have to be there by 2021. So it, it's, um, it's cool for sure. I wanted to ask you one of the videos that I watched you commented on the fact that you had, were changing your channel. And so then that made me go back and want to watch one of the older ones. And most people, most people don't have the wherewithal to be able to like step back and like reflect on their own work and be like, this is or is not what I want to be doing. 
you obviously did that. Was there like a trigger that made you shift after a couple months of doing this format to that format? How did, how did that decision come about? Because I think it's um, something most people don't do. That's such a interesting question. Um, yeah, I think it, it, because if we're, if we're strangers and you've never seen my channel before, I tell a little bit of a white lie. And when people say, how long have you had your channel? I normally say about six months because I've really only been taking it seriously for six months. And that was kind of when I made that conscious decision to change some of the way, not necessarily the content, but the way I was delivering the content. And that's, you know, six months ago was where I reflected on what I was currently uploading. And I was taking so much inspiration from other channels that I didn't like, but they were doing well. Um, and I was taking a lot of feedback from basically everyone, like people on Reddit, commenters, friends, my mum, who has only just discovered the internet, you know, all just saying that I should do these different things. And I was taking every little piece of advice so literally. And then I looked back at the work that I had and I just was not happy with the previous, I guess, like four to six months that I had there um, of just half-hearted there's one of the videos that i'm eating like chinese that i'd <laughs> ordered from like yesterday and it was like wrapped up and i'm like eating it in the back of the video and i was like this is disgusting i'm 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 not only not taking this seriously but i'm like almost uh making fun of the pe the few people that were watching it and if i wanted to build this into something that i imagined that it could be um, I needed to fix up and I, I've, I've always been into comedy, but the YouTube channel had turned into like this slapstick piece of material where I was like trying to write joke. The music thing was completely secondary and I was like trying to write jokes before filming and things. And, um, yeah, I just didn't really like the portfolio. There wasn't a portfolio of work. So I thought that the whole like vlog inside, uh, when I did that video six months ago, when I said like, I'm going to make a change to the, the channel, I, di I didn't really want it to come across like a vlog. And, um, you know, if people skipped ahead, it was fine, but I wanted people to know that, you know, like if you had previously invested in the channel that I really appreciate that, but also I want you to know that, um, almost as an apology, I wasn't taking it as seriously as I should have been. And uh, I kind of want to step up to the plate. And that's when I really kind of got a schedule together. I treated it more like a lecture and planned out the videos that I was going to do and divided my week into creating those videos and editing them. And if there were naturally parts of the video that would allow for some humor, then brilliant. But really, it was all about the education and learning and conversation that could be had around music and technology. Yeah, ever since that point, it definitely feels more curated and more branded and like clean. So, you know, that all of that work definitely comes through. What is Thank uh you. what does a week look like? So obviously some listeners may or may not know this, but my understanding is that like the real key to YouTube is consistency and schedule. So do you do one video, two videos a week? What's your process like going from start to finish? I put out two videos a week. And I try to record three or four videos a week, mm. but I try not to apply that pressure too much. Like two videos is what has to happen, but I always aim for three or four. A Monday is always filming them. So I just sit in this room, set up the lights, and I record all of the Ableton stuff that we're going to do. And then I do all the intros and outros after that. I've just like this side of the new year, I've just bought a new digital camera. So that's come with some challenges as well, because before it was all like, again, this like half heartedness. I didn't, I wasn't sure if the channel was going to take off. So I didn't throw that much money into it. So it was like phone video and uh, using the iMac camera and, and, and that kind of thing. So now that I've got a DSLR, it's like I'm learning about ratio and 4K and everything that goes with cameras. So that's, that's a separate thing, but yeah, so we aim for like, or I aim for three or four videos a week. Monday, I shoot them Tuesday morning. I edit the first one, uh, and it goes up, but now I'm at a position where I've already got the following weeks 
video because I've done a few weeks where I've shot three, shot four. I got the following week ready to go. And then Wednesday is normally my day to do other projects. So whether it be composition or sound design or whatever it be for that week, Wednesday, I'll focus on that. Thursday, the same as uh, Tuesday. And then Friday, I kind of plan the following week, but I'm a bit of a workaholic um, anyway. So Saturday and Sunday, generally there's there's some kind of composition or planning or beat making or something there uh, as well. Cool. I can imagine just from doing the podcast, how much work it is to do a consistent YouTube channel. Uh, I tried to do the podcast idea kind of started as a YouTube channel for me, but it quickly became a podcast instead of a YouTube channel. <laughs> Do you think you'll revert on that? Do you think you'll go back to having the YouTube idea like later down the line once it once you've kind of caught your breath a bit? Yeah, I, I'm working on what the YouTube idea looks like. It was kind of a, it became a, a moving target. And as, as it developed into the podcast, so I had a lot of I had a lot of ideas and they kind of culminated into this as opposed to that. So, but mm -hmm. shooting video and looking at yourself and learning how to edit video and then recording the, I mean, I was, I was losing my mind. I've the whole, yeah. the whole hard drive I, over I feel here. Like, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it seems that your podcast previous to this episode has had this kind of running theme of fear and fear in the workplace and creative industries and i feel like this whole youtube learning experience has been a bucket load of fear for me because <laughs> um i it, it, you're just battling with yourself you're looking at yourself talking to yourself and then once you put it up you're like okay let's see what everybody thinks of it and if it gets the the thumbs down you just hate yourself and then you get back up and you do the next video as well yeah no totally it's it's interesting that's definitely a common theme with uh, tons of the guests is, you know, um, the thing that you're like most afraid of is probably the thing that you should be doing. And it's definitely, mm. it's hard to put something out in the world. You know, I was never a musician that released music. So now that I, I put this podcast out, you know, you have to get over that fact that somebody's not going to like it and somebody else is going to like it. And I'm sure it's the same with the YouTube videos, but for every person that loves it, it, it's really fulfilling. I think that's like the artist's curse is that you are just like, so musicians and artists in general are just like by default kind of self-doubting and they really need that uh that external validation you know mm, and uh mm. you you have to start doing it to get over that fear and then eventually you don't care like I, you know i have friends that put yeah, music exactly. out all the time and they don't care if you like it somebody likes it somebody else doesn't like it whatever it's fine exactly and i i, I don't know about you but i'm someone that thrives on you know like make fun of me and give me <laughs> your sincere criticism because not only do i i'll see the funny side but i you know really feed off of that and you know i feel like where i've been po trying to get more people into the the channel i've been posting a lot on reddit and the reddit community youtube other social medias instagram they it seems that they can be a little bit friendly and reddit is just no if we don't like it we'll sharpen the pitchforks oh yeah and um you know i was chatting to a guy uh yesterday who commented on my video and said like the channel hasn't been up that long i'd like to start making youtube videos have you got any advice i wrote a little paragraph and essentially i said well it's, it's just that like just start the first 100 videos are going to be probably terrible but you'll get into a rhythm you'll find out where you want to go with it and you'll attract hopefully like an audience that that enjoys your learning process and then there was just a string of replies being like this is terrible advice and i was like oh, dude i don't know either like he asked for my advice that was it i didn't know that it was a wrong answer to what i was gonna say you know but it's i enjoy that the the internet is amazing did you when you were uh classroom teaching did you ever get into some of those mindset things of like just start or overcome your fear with any of your students? Is that something that came up? Yeah, I don't think it was something that came up as an obvious question with a response. I think one of the hardest things to get across was um, not so much in music production. The music production, this is, this is super interesting, but I taught two different tiers of students. There were the music production kind of family 
Um, and that was a completely separate class and different lectures. And then I, I had the um, music performance family and they were way more childlike and, you know, like had the bleached hair and were all mimicking some kind of artist from the late 80s and 90s. And then the the production guys were completely grown up and they knew who for the most part like they knew who they wanted to be and what their sound was and that kind of thing so within production there wasn't too many pep talks of like just do it and you'll learn on that they were like i've put this track out or i've got involved in this beat battle or i've just got this signed what do you think the music performance guys that were like getting into bands and hadn't played a gig before or were just about to get into a studio or whatever they uh they there was many more times when I would have to sit them down and just be like, what is it that you're afraid of? And if you only just threw yourself into it and you just did this thing, I'm almost positive that you would understand that there's not too much to be scared of and you you congratulate yourself later. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a 50, 50 one. It, there was never like a eureka moment where somebody asked me that question and I could give them like the same generic explanation. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it was, different for every single student depending on their background or where they wanted to go and what time of year it was right yeah everybody has their their unique you know fear about whatever it is and at least you know recognizing that and kind of you know encouraging kids to get over whatever it is i think is that's not something that i think general education gets into not that mm. not that like history not that you need that in history but like there's definitely places that that could be inserted into just education in general, I think. I think that's a, a really interesting point as well, because that's something that my passion, especially for the online education thing, grew from. As my years in teaching grew, obviously I had a little bit more creative freedom with what I was going to do with the students, but I always had to run something by somebody. And there was this rigid scheme of work that I had to work with. And that was already 20 years old. Right, right. And we still had to teach the students to record to tape. Mm, and yeah. like, not that it isn't important, but it isn't as important as like maybe setting up a bedroom studio and recording MIDI and, uh, you know, like being able to noise gate your microphone or what, you know, whatever. We were missing a lot of things. And one of the lectures that I did once a year on a lunch break because obviously i wasn't able to do it or allowed to do it in the regular schedule and it was totally like if you want to come along and listen to this lecture then please do and it was always a good turnout and people enjoyed it was just how to go about getting you know your first gig and attract your audience and then how to get paid through the industry and what what to watch out for and record labels versus self-releasing and and what is mcps and all, all of this other thing because that was something that wasn't like on the curriculum and i found it bizarre that nobody was teaching kids about like taxes and <laughs> things like that and there, there there was probably a way that you could make it enjoyable and take questions because that's some of the stuff that i would have loved to have learned in school i didn't you oh, know yeah. i moved out when i was really young so then when i rent came at the end of the first month and there was loads of other stuff that I had to pay for as well. I was like, what? Nobody told me this. Shouldn't we be learning this stuff? Yeah. It was something that I wanted to like make fun and be able to have some like creative freedom with as the times changed. Yeah. Musicians and creatives, they, they're just not interested in that stuff. And it's so valuable, like everything you just mentioned and, you know, particularly like, you know, how to manage finances in one way or another especially when you you are on a roller coaster income like you you know we all know like producers and musicians can have like a really great January February and then like make nothing in March well you have to be ready for not making anything yeah. in March you know mm. regarding that um that seminar that you would give at lunch is there is there a one or two liner that that you'd like to share with listeners about you know trying to get a gig or or any highlight points from that i think the um the standout moment for it was that um and i know this sounds this sounds a little bit hippie <laughs> airy fairy but i think people can get caught up with an idea and they can fall in love with that idea it could be as simple as this is my band name 
and then you go on SoundCloud or Spotify or YouTube or whatever, and there's another band with that name, and you're like, well, okay, well, they've got a million subscribers, but maybe if I change this N to an M, you know, people will still find us, and it'll be like, no, you you can't be in love with that idea that much. And I think the other thing that goes that would come round time and time again is I was always I would always teach them about the six social medias that you should have and there's more now but when I was doing this seminar it was like six main social medias and the way you should use them and make them interact and because you know everybody in that room was an artist and you know they were all unique in their own ways there would be 10 people that would be like I'm against social media I'm not gonna have it and I'll be like, all right, but you're shooting yourself in the foot. Like learn how to use, I hate social media, but learn how to use it yeah. as a business tool. And these are the ways that they should interact and you should have them speak to each other. And I think when I did that kind of little bit, people would tend to listen up because it, it can be really interesting. I find like the trends within social media marketing really interesting and the use of hashtags, um, really interesting for example there's something going on on instagram right now amongst the beatmaker community called jamuary and obviously that's just a beat a day every day for january which is perfectly fine if you just want to self-explore hold yourself accountable to make something every day and then just have a little bit of fun but as you explore hashtag jamuary it's so many people chasing like clout and they're going to release this beat tape of 30 songs at the end of January. And it's like, but you just rush these every day. There was no thought. You thought about it, you know, on the 1st of January, oh, I'm going to get involved in this thing. And who's watching hashtag January? So it's a bunch of other beat makers that aren't invested in you. They're invested in themselves. And also, what did you do before January? Well, you didn't release anything for five years. So you're coming out of the gate with all this, you know, rushed work and then in february do you stop and you pat yourself on your back and you oh it was a really busy january i'm glad i did that they're the bits i get interested in because it's like if you can spot that this january hashtag is coming and put out some work before january and december or november beat that whilst everybody gets a little bit tired of every beat maker that they follow from school posting a beat every day and they've muted everybody they haven't muted you because you haven't been spamming every day bothering people share my beat share my beat and then in february you've actually worked on a good single or a couple of singles and you can release another one at the end of february that kind of and they're the the things that i would say to the class that and that i'm still very like passionate and excited about because i think they're the things that you can overlook and you can get swept up with just these are the trends or challenges that are working online right now yeah, completely. Yeah, the the trends in social media are, are a little crazy. Something that you said that made me think of something else that somebody else said was that um, a lot of people get stuck, maybe on purpose or on accident in, you know, impressing their peers. And so when you're coming up with like, if you're a musician, or we'll say beat maker, if you're a beat maker, and you're looking to create content, and you see January, and you're like, all right, like you said, I'm gonna make a beat every day, and then I'm gonna release this mixtape you're releasing something that like you said other beat makers are also doing you're only trying to appeal to not your audience your peers like people need to like remember sometimes they set out to like create content that they think will like launch their career to another level but you're mm. i think a lot of people instinctively make content for their peers without even thinking about it and that doesn't mean like you're going to get a gig exactly. yeah you're not going to sell records making 30 beats and like sharing them with a bunch of beat makers, they're all going to listen to it. You need yeah. to do something that your audience is looking for. And, you know, I mean, that goes down to like, you know, all these like PDFs or YouTube videos or whatever it is. There's so much content that people use to hopefully market themselves, but I feel like they don't realize that they're targeting the wrong people. They're tar targeting mm. their peers and not their audience, which is interesting to me. Um, people don't see that. I find it hugely interesting and yeah, I just, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, with that, with that subject alone, I could talk until the cows come home and you, you've <laughs> like, you, you've, you've already got a, a, a feel for who I am and you know that I'll go on loads of tangents. So I'm just going to say, a tangent's Travis, good, man. No, no I, problem. I agree, buddy. I agree. That's it. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I don't want to, um, 
I, I want to get off of uh, YouTube because you do so many other things. So let, sure. let's let's use that as a moment to uh, to tack over to. Um, you said Wednesday is uh, is other project day. How much of your other projects are Hush Child versus producing for other artists versus uh, sync or TV work? I, I, you do a little bit of that, right? Yeah. So um, how does how's the rest of your world look outside of YouTube? Terrifying, <laughs> um, because because I'm discovering it all at the same time. Like I said, one year ago was when I was doing full time teaching at a college and 50% everything else. And, and I was busy all the time um, in that period at the end of the workday, which is five o'clock, I would head into London and I would do a gig. Another day I would be, there was like three days that I was at the studio in Brick Lane and I would work there. And then on Saturday, I would normally have another gig or a studio session and the same on Sunday. But it didn't matter if the gig didn't go as well as it I'd hoped or perhaps like they brought in a brass section and they couldn't pay the key members of the band as much as they promised or what, you know, whatever it was, because I had that college job where it was like really safe. So yeah, outside of YouTube, my time is mostly divided up equally between, you know, the, the things that are available to me right now, whether it be sync work or production, that kind of thing. But if there is something that comes over the horizon, that's perhaps a little bit better paid or deems my attention, then I give it, you know, my full force. Cause I'm still trying to figure that out. When I, when I started this journey, I had a bumpy three months, which I'm sure everybody does. And I'm, I'm glad it was only three months, but I was throwing all my attention into just building a website. And I was like, it needs to be a great website. And you know, my girlfriend, like always the voice of reason, she was like, you have no portfolio that is recent, you know, just focus on that and, you know, get, you know, get some more current sync work and things like that. To answer your question right now, I want to build my sound design portfolio. So I've reached out to loads of people that I really respect that are like animators and filmmakers and videographers to see if they need any sound design work, because that's something that I'd really enjoy dipping my toe into. It's not something that I've done in a professional aspect that much. I've done some sound design work. So I recently reached out to uh, this guy, Nathan, who works for Disney, and he's just doing like a little um, personal project and he's going to send that my way. So I've been focusing on that. I don't think I'm allowed to like say too much more of what that one is just in case i don't know how much trouble i could get in um and then yeah and then a lot of the free time that i've had have been uh, hush child which really blindsided me again because when i went into this i thought right i'm gonna be probably doing some compositional work and then cleaning up audio for podcasts and different i don't know audio books and whatever when i went into this and then when i started releasing music as hush child that became my main source of income because people were buying it off a of band camp and then they were streaming it on Spotify and Amazon and Apple music and things. So it's been a little while since I've released anything under hush child in, in, in at least the internet's eyes. Every time I tend to do some kind of live stream, people are like, okay, cool. It's been six months or however long it was since you released the last piece of music. When's the next thing coming out? So I've been focusing on building a couple new tracks and maybe staggering some singles and releasing those over the next couple of months. That's cool. That's awesome. You found Bandcamp to be really fruitful for you as an artist? Uh, more recently, now that there's been more light on them waiving their fees on a Friday. And if you check those analytics, it seems to be going up on a Friday and okay. then people leave it, which is really exciting because it seems that the audience, uh, they have this consciousness of like, cool, I'll wait until Friday and then I'll buy Will's music because he's going to keep the money rather than buy it on a different day of the week where, you know, the fees go to Bandcamp, which is obviously sad for someone out there. Somebody's losing out. Um, but yeah, Bandcamp's been been helpful as of late, but I, it's still the the overarching monster is uh, Spotify. Yeah, I feel like a lot of a lot of people that I talk to seem to have a lot of hope for Bandcamp being, you know, a pretty good place for independent artists. Uh, but in the end, like you said, Spotify landing one of those editorial playlists is kind of 
the goal of Spotify? I mean, if you're if you're not on, I, I know I saw you on a couple, uh, um, at least one lo-fi one that I listened to. That's just uh, like it's necessary to get on there for discovery. Hundred percent. So, I would love to. When SoundCloud was the thing, I was like rooting for SoundCloud, and I was like, "This is so cool!" Like, this is gonna be. I was telling all my friends. I can't even remember when it came out. Maybe when I was at school, college. Telling all my friends, this is the social media for musicians and beat makers. This is going to be the one. Yeah. And then it kind of fell by the wayside. And then I discovered Bandcamp and I was like, this is the hipster social media <laughs> for musicians and beat makers. And again, like it's it's kind of taken off in a more um, conscious sense. But I, I again, it's like, and I don't, I don't want this bit to get twisted or misinterpreted, but like the activism of everybody working on something. And there's like a highlight on Bandcamp waving their fees on a Friday and trying to help people. People do get tired of that thing. They're like, oh, okay, we bought some records on a Friday. Right. And then we're on to the next thing. And uh, I can't I can't see that um, all, all that it would take. It, maybe it wouldn't even take that. You know, I was going to say all that it would take is for Spotify to say, well, we're going to waive our fees for one day of the year. And everybody's attention would, but but I don't even think it's that deep. I think Spotify are like, cool, have your Friday. We'll have everything. We'll have every other so, day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully those those Fridays bring people to Bandcamp that otherwise would have never been there. You know, it's mm. like probably in, in the way that like a YouTuber or a podcast episode, it's like a new guest or a new video or a new hashtag brings you X number of plays and views and hopefully a certain percentage of those people stick around for the party. So I wanted to ask you, you have a lot of things going on, a million things. Do you have any tricks or mindsets that help you keep yourself accountable? And and obviously you don't have time to be lazy, so you you have no lazy days. So how, no how did you become days. such a uh, like workaholic person that can hold themselves accountable? Workaholic's a bad word. Let's take that out. Yeah, uh, I think... I can't remember. I wish I could remember who told me and it might not even be a who told me. I feel like it might have been a TED. Do you ever get that? Like you're listening to a podcast or a TED talk or something and you're like, somebody told me and you're like, no, I watched it or I read it. Um, <laughs> totally. I don't have conversations with people. So wherever I got this from, I remember hearing that it used to be in the 70s, the 80s and before that, you know, you would chip away at your craft and if you were good enough and lucky enough, then you would be, you know, somewhere near the top of that table and your career would blossom and work would come to you. And then you could kind of sit back on that craft that you had built up and those relationships that you had made. But as we moved into the Napster, LimeWire, internet, social media generation, obviously that's not the case. And, and kids can crack and pirate everything. And YouTube's such a big teacher, as as we've said over the course of the podcast, that it, it really doesn't matter if you're Timberland or Rick Rubin or a 13-year-old kid that's cracked Fruity Loops and is and has a SoundCloud account. It doesn't matter if you know how harmonic distortion works or sidechain compression or whatever. If you've got Sausage Fattener and a limiter, then you can kind of slap that on the master track. And if people resonate with it, then wicked, you made a big track. I was talking to a kid the other day that made a track for one of my favorite rappers. And um, I messaged him. He didn't have that many followers. And I wanted to, you know, what's your story? How did it come about? And he was like, just whacked it on Beat Stars. It was something I had on SoundCloud. Like a overnight, <laughs> oh, I made it in 10 minutes. It doesn't matter. So I remember... I don't think I had a conversation. I think I heard it on a podcast, but I remember hearing that and knowing that this career path that I had imagined for myself where I just keep, you know, ticking away at it will eventually get me in a place where I might uh, make some professional relationships and rub shoulders with the right people and that kind of thing. And that kind of fizzled away in that moment. And then I reflected on, I have a lot of apps that like, I'm obsessed with tracking. So like tracking oh, yeah. how long my laptop has been asleep in terms of like, you know, how I haven't wiggled the mouse. So I must be watching something or whatever, tracking my sleep and all this kind of thing. And I just noticed how much time I do. I don't even think I do anything, Travis. I think I just exist in silence and just be. 
and uh and it wasn't enough so i you know i looked at how i work and we said before the podcast like this period of time right now is when i feel most creatively exhausted that i can't get any compositional work it's hard to write and it only gets worse as the evening goes on so like i'll get up earlier in the morning was my first step okay and i don't have a problem with getting up early so scheduling was a huge part to answer your question get up at six i'm not like a 4am club or anything like crazy but um you know get up at six and that's when i'll get all the creative work done until about 10 o'clock yeah and then have something to eat listen back to those ideas and then do all of the kind of whether it be filming or editing or mixing mastering stuff that i call like musical admin where you just like it doesn't really take a creative mindset you just need to like listen and it needs to have your attention and then that four or five o'clock period of time is emails and professional work yeah well that's great i mean i'm i'm an early uh i'm a 5 a.m or uh myself oh. and, yeah and um i get so much more done i mean sometimes i make a joke with my wife that like 10 o'clock rolls around and i'm like done i'm like i'm too tired to yeah. do anything and that's like right when like emails start rolling in where people want like mixed revisions or something and i'm just like I'm so yep. exhausted I'm going to take a nap. I'm, Can I ask what you do to, uh, how do you fight through that and speed through to the other side? Is there anything that you do to like rejuvenate yourself and get back into that mindset? Oh, it's a mix for me, depending on, I try to exercise as regular as I possibly can. I was doing really good until we had all those fires over here and like it was, the smoke was okay. awful. So I've been fighting right, it, but yeah. um, I find that like a run and like listening to a podcast or just like something, you know, will will give me a lot of ideas. I get a ton of ideas while I'm running and I take more breaks than I used to take. I mean, almost almost hourly, I'm taking a break for 10 or 15 minutes. And I used to sit for like six or seven straight hours and just get up for like lunch. I find that getting up and just, you know, walking around for 15 minutes, that helps a lot. It'll snap me back in. Yeah, that's kind of it's not a great answer, but that's kind of how I, I snap back in. So just separating, mm. I find separating for a minute, maybe listening to something else for five minutes that that kind of keeps me in it. But mm. I try to like, you know, keep the phone off. I try to not check my email when I'm when I'm mixing. Yeah. I just that's find you get everything done so much faster. And then in the morning too, like your ears are so fresh. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's funny, you know, guys that like work all night. It's like you probably your ears are exhausted by like 6 p.m. Yeah super fatigued yeah so so i'm kind of similar you know a lot of the productivity in my life is based on getting up early and kind of crushing it before people start distracting you because phone starts ringing emails start coming in and brains just wander you know yeah um, yeah yeah you've listened to the show so you you know how it ends let's let's get to um let's get to what is your current goal and what's the next smallest thing you're going to do to go there so I've mentioned that my passion is technology and the way it's moving and the way that it works in collaboration with music. And I'm hugely pass passionate about innovation as well. And I think that, dude, if I'm going to interrupt my own tangent, Here, here's what it is. If you'd have asked me this a week ago, I would have said that uh, I really wanted to get involved in VR and composition and mix for VR. My cousin and a family friend work in VR and I was so excited about it. And I was like, this is the perfect opportunity to start that project. And they were like, nah, it's dead. Like no one's investing in VR anymore. I don't know how true that is, but they're like my, you know, to me, the horse's mouth. Right. So it was going to be VR and I want to get involved in mixing and how that works in 360 sound. But for now, the things that I'm working on is, uh, is sound design and uh, storytelling, just how to create that world. It's always something that I've enjoyed in Hush Child and the other music that I create um, in terms of found sounds and uh, creating an atmosphere to listen to music. So I'm just going to be creating as much music as possible and trying to tell better stories with the sound design elements and the music that is, is being recorded. Awesome. Yeah, I think when people reach a point where they want everything they do to be so deliberate, you know, you want every aspect of your track to to fulfill the emotion that you intended. That's like where every artist should strive to be. So many people mm. just stack sound on sound on sound on sound on sound. Exactly. You know, just make one dope sound. Exactly. 
Yeah. But dude, this has been really, really enjoyable. Do you want to, I know you have a, a bunch of socials and stuff. They'll all be in the show notes, but is there anything you want to share uh, websites and stuff on the, on the show? No, I mean, most people can find me youtube.com slash Will Hatton. They could check the description. I'm on Instagram at the Will Hatton and uh, basically all my portfolios and about me and everything is at willhattonmusic.com. Awesome. Well, dude, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for, uh, for joining me. This has been great. We'll, uh, we'll have Thank to do you this so again. Much. It's been a blast. Yeah. Yes, please, man. Thank you so much for having me on. So that's it for episode 17. Thank you so much for listening. As usual, I appreciate all the likes and the shares. Send me some comments and messages if you've been enjoying the show. And don't forget to join us at completeproducer.net and join in the conversation there. We'll see you next week.